Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. How are you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome to Tech Radio for 10 years, the number one Irish tech podcast, bringing you the latest in tech from around Ireland and across the world. Remember, as well as our show on air with RTE, podcast on iTunes, Spotify and TuneIn and online via the website. We keep you up to date on all things tech every single day with hourly updates and daily newsletters, which you can grab for free at techcentral.ie. Joining me as always is our editor-in-chief, uh, Niall Kitson. Uh, Niall, we're still talking this week about the national broadband plan it, it's beginning to turn into ireland's version of brexit do you think it is it's become a debate onto you know it's it's a spiraling debate at this stage um and you know as of today we're talking about the Oireachtas communications committee establishing uh, a probe to look into how things were decided and you know uh, were were there could there have been a better way to do this? Um, did the government ignore advice from uh, the Department of uh, Expenditure um, over, you know, less learned voices in these things, if you will? Mm. Um, last week, we d- we discussed the, the plan. We, we likened it to rural electrification. Um, I think, are we, were we... At the stage where we said, you know, it doesn't matter the cost, this this has to be done, I think. Was that our, our, our line d- of reasoning? No, I don't, I, I don't think we went as far as saying it doesn't matter the cost. I think it was we recognised that the cost would be huge because you are talking about laying fibre cable across uh, miles and miles of, you know, empty land, essentially. Uh, and that mm. just costs a lot of money um but we were uh from last week's conversation we were okay we get it we think it's worth it we think the benefits will be felt by the country for the next 10 20 30 years it'll certainly establish ireland uh, on the world stage and keep us on the world stage for every years to come this is something that should be done Uh, it's a lot of money but in the big context of things especially because we were comparing it to the banks and we said, okay, yeah. so three billion, and, and, and we spent sixty-five billion on the banks. Whatever. Um, I was going to mention about the National Children's Hospital, which has cost uh, whatever one point seven billion or something like that. The National Broadband Plan is three billion. Uh, the Children's Hospital is for children, and it's only based in Dublin. Mm, the National okay. Broadband Plan is for half a million homes right across the country. Yeah. Okay, now yeah. I know you can't really compare the two things, but I am anyway. Um, so I think we were very much in agreement. But the one thing that we were chatting about last week was at the end of the day, when all the money has been spent and the network is in place, who owns it? And by the looks of it, it's this private company, Granham McCourt, who will own the whole thing. Yeah, that's that's the problem. Uh, and there are a few things that are emerging in our discussions about this. Uh, one, of course, is that Granite McCourt isn't a telco. They're not going to rock up and start putting fibre into places. They're, they're, a, they're a fund. They're going to put together subcontractors. Uh, they, they've got 40 companies in mind for uh, putting the, the network in place. And then they're going to sort of coordinate and, and let things go. Uh, and there's, you know, one giant big elephant in the room there, uh, which means that, which is, You've got a purely commercial entity that has put together a structure 
um, and uh, has a very nice, potentially lucrative contract, I guess. Um, huh. they, what happens if they get bored with the project after two years? Do they just flip it? Can they do that? Uh, do you know, I don't, well, obviously I don't know, but I would imagine that they can't flip it in the next two years. I think there would be something in the agreement. And that, that is a pretty big darn agreement. I think it's 1500 page contract or something like that, that they have with the government. Um, but what if at the end of the project, when they're sitting on the network, they can certainly flip it then. And people are, (laughs) what makes me laugh is people go, but what if they flip it? What if they decide to sell it? It's like, uh, hello, that's going to happen. (laughs) (laughs) Are you convinced it's going to happen? Of course it's going to happen because that's what always happens with all of these companies. And especially uh, when you've got like a a, a management company, if you want to call Granham McCourt that, uh, that I've just kind of put this uh, project together and and off they go. I don't understand how we've gone because we used to have these public-private partnerships where we built uh, motorways and the M50 and the bridge over um, the strawberry beds in Dublin. And from what I remember with that was uh, there was a private company involved and they were charged with building it and then operating it for X amount of years. But after X amount of years when they've made their profit, ownership would revert back to the state. Yes. That does not appear to be the case here. No, uh, it isn't. And And this is kind of why I'm saying this could end up being our Brexit because, you know, after so many years... All right. And so many changes. And now finally a plan has kind of been put on the table. And like, that's it. As like uh, Theresa May going, this is the deal. And this is the only deal. (laughs) All right. It's all happening again. And like everybody else is going, no, it's not. Oh, there's a problem here. And what if? And blah, blah. And it's too expensive. And do we need it? Blah, blah. So like, I I can just see it not happening. Oh, that's okay. Well, if it doesn't happen, then there's going to be one heck of a legal storm uh, and it's going to cost us an awful lot of money with absolutely nothing to show at the end of it so i think it is going to happen uh i think the ends will probably justify the means um i mean the ends really uh, according to the plan is that um uh customers that that are subscribing to the national broadband plan will get 150 megs for 30 euro a month which is all right. That's very, very good, is what it is. Uh, that's that's worth waiting for, in my opinion. Uh, it's one of these things that the money will eventually make itself back, whether that's in public hands or private hands now. That's, that's the thing. Uh, I think, yeah, I don't know. I can understand why people feel very passionate about it. Um, I think reading into the details of how the money is going to be spent and when it's going to be spent. Uh, There are benchmarks along the way, like until various things are specified, um, National Broadband won't be getting any money from the state. No. So... But that's um, but that's the thing. I, I, you know, everybody's having their little, you know, kind of little spats about it costs too much and this and who's going to spend the money and blah 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 and all that kind of stuff. I'm fine with the entire national broadband plan, right up to the bit where when it's all done, who owns it? Yeah, and you know, yeah. to to have this private company essentially put in seven percent of the money and then own one hundred percent of the company is like ridiculous. It's like if I said to you, uh, "Would you give me seven thousand euro?" Now, to you or I, being asked for seven thousand euro is something you'd think about. 
Absolutely. And then if I said to you, okay, give me the 7,000 euro and I will come back to you in 10 years' time and you will own a thing that's worth 100,000 euro. And if you wish, you can sell that thing then for 100,000 euro, meaning you've made a profit of 93,000 euro. Mm. Yep. So on the, given, given that circumstance, would you find the seven grand? Of course you would. Of course you, you, you would. would. You would pull it together. <laughs> you would take out a bank loan. <laughs> Whatever it, it happens. So, yeah, so I think it's going to roll on. But I think that, and, and here's where I, I may be a little bit controversial, if it doesn't happen, so what? Uh, that's more than a little controversial, Dusty. Um, I think it's it's inevitable. It's going to happen. I think it's going to leave a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. Uh, but, mm. look... I don't, I, 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 think, I think it's a very strong case that it may not happen. And if it doesn't happen, I don't think it's going to be the end of the world because many of the big players who were interested in rolling out the National Broadband Plan when it started a number of years ago have gone on their own way. Uh, and what we have here is the majority of the population, 80% of the population will have access to reasonable or very, very good broadband. Okay, and what about the other 20%? Well, that's why I'm saying, so what? Ooh, okay, right. All right, it's it's one of those things. And and the reason I'm saying so what is that I've I've moved away from the city. I don't live near the city anymore, okay? Mm. Uh, And I'm kind of out in the, 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 the sticks a little bit. And part of the penalty of that is that you just don't have all the things you would expect when you're living in a more built-up area. So public transport isn't as good. You know, the cinemas uh, locally aren't as good. Uh, The broadband is not as good. This is what happens when you don't live in a metropolitan area. Oh, my goodness, Dusty. It's it's all coming out today. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, kind of, I absolutely support the, the National Broadband Plan. I think it's fantastic. And I think we should have businesses running in remote areas or the ability to be able to run in remote areas. And if it costs an awful lot of money to do that, well, then so be it. We will see it uh, back in, in the long run. But to give ownership of a, of a substantial company like that to to uh, a private operator and then just i i, I think that's crazy so i'm i'm yeah. i'm i'm interested to see and if it doesn't go ahead well it doesn't go ahead because in, in long term we're talking about 20 percent of the population yeah well you know and we've seen we've been here before with aircom you know the most disastrous decision oh uh, my god yeah, yeah 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 and listen life trundles on and everybody lives yeah. You know, um, okay. Listen, other things happen this other, week. Other things happening. Uh, WhatsApp, have you updated? Have you upgraded? Uh, I updated automatically. Uh, the wonderful world of iOS. Mm. Um, I think it's really interesting, though, from a reputational standpoint, because WhatsApp was kind of one of those things where it was encrypted. And the whole thing yes. about WhatsApp is you could trust it because, you know, from point A to point B, nobody was able to see what was going on. Yep. And now there's a vulnerability in it. Uh, well, there was. Uh, and no, it got- there is. Okay, because there sh- that should never have happened. Right. So your argument is that the vulnerability is that an exploit was found. Yes. Not the specific exploit. Exactly. And if this one was found, well, then another one can be found. And I would say that that is probably true of 
all software that is connected to the internet. So don't worry, I'm not picking out WhatsApp. Uh, but what I'm just kind of saying is like WhatsApp is <laughs> don't trust it. <laughs> Okay. Maybe I'm off my conspiracy theory uh, uh, things again, but don't trust it. Like I've been saying for years, don't trust Facebook. Facebook own WhatsApp and WhatsApp say everything's encrypted. And now WhatsApp has been shown to be vulnerable. Don't trust any of it. Uh, well, that's that's pretty reasonable advice. But if, if you look at what people use WhatsApp for, right? Mm. Uh, okay, end-to-end encryption, that's fine. Uh Construct your own group, that's fine. That's only going to be a very small number of people anyway. Mm -hmm. So there have been breaches of uh, WhatsApp before, or not so much a a breach. Uh, This is the application of a piece of software called Pegasus, which was developed by a company in Israel called NSO Group. And uh, it was deployed. uh, uh, Ostensibly, it's meant to be used by governments and law enforcement um, in the battle against organized crime. It is also being used against journalists and lawyers and, you know, uh, how would you say, uh, inverted commas, dissident uh, groups, if you will, to, uh, to, to spy. And how many people were actually affected by this last breach? WhatsApp has said probably in the low dozens. Yeah. Very few now, people. Drop in the ocean. WhatsApp has, what, more than a billion users? About, about one and a half billion users last time I looked. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're talking not even a blip. We're, you know, it's, it's at the atomic level. Yeah. Um, the number of people actually affected by this breach. It's like, yes. It's, it's like, you know, kind of, you know, if a, a lady walks into a, a bachelor pad uh, that's just been recently cleaned and then somehow, I don't know how they do it, but over there in the corner and they have a look and they go, oh, look, piece of dust. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's what it was, essentially, at one time. It was that small. Uh, yes, and that is... But the reputational impact, I mean, it may as well have affected everybody. Yes. Technically, it did affect everybody. But um, the very things that people like about WhatsApp, that level of control, once you put a dent in that and imply that, you know what, you don't have as much control as you thought you did. That's a big problem. Uh, well, I, all I'm saying today is just remember that you don't have as much control as you think you had and don't think that things are as safe as you think they are and don't think things are as secret as you think they are. Trust nobody, I suppose, is probably my, my mantra when it comes to the internet. <laughs> you yeah, know? well, I, I would be slightly more moderate and say, you know, be careful what you mm. share. Um, Facebook, interesting story uh, this week where they're trying to cut back on hate, spe- uh, hate speech and especially with this guy in New Zealand uh, and yes. uh, broadcast his atrocities live on uh, on video. And Facebook have come back and this, I kind of like this and then I don't. Uh, they say, uh, we are now introducing a one-strike policy in that if we find you, in our opinion, guilty of any of these things, that's it, you're out. Yes. Uh, now, okay, in theory. However, um, when uh, this this awful atrocity was being carried out, and I had the misfortune to see it uh, through an autoplayed video, like mm-hmm. it, it was re- absolutely repellent. Uh, 
mm-hmm. um, to have to be exposed to that by virtue of a feature. And it's not the first time this has happened. I mean, there was a, a, an appalling um, shooting in um, America, which was uh, carried out um, live on Facebook. And once again, it was embedded in my newsfeed with an autoplay function mm. on it. Right. So I you know, no choice but to be exposed to this for even the briefest of moments. Um, and the problem that was kind of unique to the New Zealand case was that there was a network around this gentleman, um, this this murderer, uh, that as soon as one copy of his video or his stream was taken down, there was somebody there to upload re-upload and re-upload so it wasn't a case that there was one stream it was a case that there was loads of them and it was you know like playing whack-a-mole you know you you take down one another one appears in its in its place there was clearly a coordinated effort to make sure that the material uh, remained available online and in real time Uh, listen the world is is full of crazy people but uh yeah, unfortunately. But at least Facebook are doing something about it anyway. And uh, as I said, I like the uh, the one-strike policy thing in a way. But uh, that is going to come back and uh, bite Facebook in the ass as well. Uh, listen, that's it for uh, news for this week. Now, as always, keeping thanks for keeping us up to date. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. Earlier this year, we spoke to Autodesk CEO Andrew Anagnost about his company's plan to give regular people the power to design and create anything from toys to robots. Well, it turns out there are loads of makers here in Ireland already doing just that. MADE is a two-year programme funded by Science Foundation Ireland and hosted by DCU, which seeks to bring together makers from across the country through festivals, public spaces, training and events. Vicky Toomey-Lee is a maker advocate whose job it is to provide a focal point for the maker movement. She sat down with Niall Kitson to explain MADE and she started by outlining her own experience in fostering communities. Vicky, your current role is in uh, basically technology advocacy, but you have a long history in this area as well. So tell us a little bit about your experience. So my background is um, I'm a developer, a coder, and I got into this language called Python uh, back in the early 2000s. So I sound quite old right now. And I came across this Python uh, Ireland meetup group um, in 2004, and I took over running it in 2005, and I think that's how I got really involved with the tech community, but it was really small back then. Um, you can think of it, you have meetups, probably like six organizations that might hold, not meetups, but seminars or something like that, maybe once or twice a year. And, um, and that was pretty uh, uh, n- new and exciting because I didn't, because normally I talk tech with folks in the company and you want to talk to other people outside and learn lots of new stuff. Uh, for me, um, it's more advocacy, diversity in tech. So that I um, kind of fell into that around 2012 and 2013. I normally just feign ignorance, I suppose, as I went through the years. I just said, okay, I'm the only one here, or I don't see another Chinese person. or um, and, and I just wanted to learn about the tech, and I didn't. Uh, uh, and I thought that was the way it is way back. And then... Um, as I was running uh, these Python conferences called Python Ireland, I ran the first four. Uh, there was one, I ran my last one in 2013, 
and I really, really want to find out why people weren't turning up for it, why, why it wasn't diverse enough attendees. So I went asking around, I went to Ireland Girl Geek Dinners, I talked to all the networks that I have, and I'm um, trying to find the right message. And um, that particular year was really um, ecstatic because I got the very, our very first female keynote techie, techie speaker, and she came all the way from San Francisco, and she was the uh, one of the co-founders of the San Francisco chapter of Pi Ladies, and that's where I launched Pi Ladies Dublin that particular year as well. And it kind of... Uh, kind of it kind of um, uh, branched out to other things like a software engineer friend of mine. She brought a whole bunch of us together and wondering why there weren't enough uh, females in kids coding clubs. Conversations took off from there and we started up, we started this organization to run uh, uh, female friendly coding workshops. And um, that was back in 2012. And I'm still running them, um, not as frequent. So it kind of, um, it just happened around that period that I ended up focusing my uh, my awareness of why we should increase diversity in coming to these events uh, especially as I run a lot of them and it's just a question that has has been in the back of my mind that was didn't want to approach and because it was a it was a hard subject to approach and hard thing to try and solve which is still not quite solved but it's improving um, and that kind of um, branched out to I, I'm interested in a lot of things as well so it's not, not just uh, diversity in tech I also run game jams and um, and f- from that it's just uh, depending on where I am and who I meet and how I ended up in the, the various different kind of jobs it's not um, kind of uh, the usual path as a, as a developer in the tech industry I went from coding to running events which a lot of people are doing now if you can see Meetup to curating an exhibition called Game and Science Gallery, to being a tech liaison for a co-sharing uh, uh, kind of uh, office space called Dogpatch, um, to, uh, to, to also being a tech liaison and technical content um, uh, kind of a manager for events company that runs careers, career fairs and festivals. And to right now, I'm a maker advocate with the on the Double Maker team. So it's kind of a kind of a really scenic route and it's very different to your usual kind of a way of getting of being I suppose um, uh, for me an advocate diversity in tech to just being part of the tech community and one of the things about being part of that tech community is that having started in coding you're now in the makerspace which is far more diverse uh, and maybe you're looking for uh, a more diverse crowd and when I say diverse I mean uh, people of different ages as well as genders and demographics that as well as people with so many different skills that I don't have for me it's all about software I, I've, I'm aware of electronics I'm aware of hardware I'm terrified of them which is a great thing to say when you're a maker advocate I suppose because it's, an un, it's sort of an area where if you think of a game it's kind of like a fog around you and you want to clear it. So for me, it's a challenge. When I took up, when I applied for this role, I know it is a challenge, and uh, I'm not afraid to admit my imposter syndrome is through the roof right now. But uh, it is there is so much to learn from all folks. From when they're even just say, for example, the coolest projects. You have young kids with a lot of amazing projects, right up to teens. Then you have all the adults, uh, which I see a lot, and then you just have people who who say that they're not techy enough or they're not a maker or creator, but they have amazing ideas. 
And for me, I'm I'm coming from just pure software, and I like the creative. I love the creative aspect. That's why I run a lot of game jams. I love seeing how people create these digital games, as well as these analog games, or even mushing the digital and analog together when they create these things in the day. So, with the with um, um, in this role, I get to come across a lot of people from not just. Um, difference in age or different backgrounds it's it definitely it's different skill sets um, and just hearing why they're interested in um, in what they're doing their be it hobby or and or how they ended up um, um, doing it as their maybe they started a company out of it to even large organizations you know and how people working in them and you know how in the, maybe their department or a group you know how what did they make and what's their interest in it it's just there's so, such a wide spectrum and um, I'm definitely excited to learn about it all and encounter all these people what you're sort of talking about at the moment is sort of a, a shared mental space really uh, encouraging people to bring their own ideas to the table from, from specific areas um, but part of your mission is also encouraging the development of physical spaces uh, in particular with uh, Dublin City Council so tell us a little bit uh, about how we might see makerspaces in libraries. So when I started my role, which is uh, in April, uh, I uh, had a meeting with uh, Dublin City Council with a couple of folks from the Double Maker team. And uh, it was really, really interesting because they were so excited about um, the whole maker culture, how they can introduce and um, provide access to all these um, projects that, uh, that people can make and create in their spaces. Uh, so at the moment, um, Kulak and Ballyferment are the two uh, libraries um, that uh, will have maker spaces. Uh, so they're asked, asked us to come in and uh, advise uh, how to kit it out, programs, um, and, um, and training, and basically how to promote maker to the culture and all these activities to everyone in the com- in their community and uh, one exciting part of it is uh, we get to convert one of their um, mobile library vans to become a mobile maker van and uh, I was lucky enough to see one of these out in Cabra it was huge and I can't wait until we strip strip a similar van out and see what we can do with it uh, so many ideas floating in, in my head and the team's heads as well so uh, is this something that's going to happen that we're, we're going to see this lab go on the road uh, that we're going to get out of Dublin into other cities Cork, Limerick etc for me my, my own this would be my opinion I would love to have this on the road and reach further afield in Dublin but we have so many areas in Dublin which uh, there's a lot of communities who find it um, hard to access a lot of this say equipment or these um, uh, these workshops that you, you see in the city centre all the time and people not necessarily are able even if they have the time they might not necessarily able to go because especially with the um, folks who are under 18 um, they might need a guardian and parent and that might not always be possible so from previous experiences you see um, I've, um, I've volunteered myself to give talks or workshops but they're doing school hours um, in various schools and stuff so hopefully this will give a wider reach um, around Dublin and then uh, we shall see how far we can reach because this is uh, the, pro- the maker advocate role is part of a two year program 
funded by SFI. So we, we, we shall see how far we can go um, with this uh, mobile maker van. Um, so once we have this kitted out, um, uh, we, just, we shall kind of plan the program and talk with the library, uh, with Dublin City Council Public Libraries and staff and see what we can do. And then I'll say we'll have a few test runs and trying it out and see how far we can go. So this is only the start of two years. Who knows, you know, we, maybe there's going to be, if the idea takes off, maybe we're going to have, you know, one or two more vans that come, you know, around the, around the country. That'd be amazing. Well, that's just from my perspective and what I see in my head. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that's for me to trying to uh, push that out to uh, all the folks, especially and. Um, people who I'm talking to in the libraries and to the team as well and anyone else who will listen to me <laughs> and that was Niall Kitson talking to maker advocate Vicky Toomey-Lee the Dublin Maker event is taking place on July 20th in Marion Square in the centre of the city and you can learn more about that at www.dublinmaker.ie that's almost our show for this week just before we uh, head off let's go with our one more thing what is it this week Niall? Yeah, interesting story. The city of Belfast is toying with its own brand of cryptocurrency. You can get the lowdown on that and all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more from our website at techcentral.ie. And of course, remember to listen to us each week online on podcasts or Fridays on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. So next week, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, and from Niall Kitson, thanks so much for listening and have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by DigitalAudioProductions.com. Tech Central.